think a lot of folks were saddened last weekend when they heard that Matthew Perry had died. Uh, Matthew Perry, many of you may know, uh, starred as Chandler Bing on the popular 90s sitcom Friends. And a lot of the coverage around his death uh, talked about how he had struggled with addiction over the years. It's not clear whether that contributed to his death or not, at least not yet that I've heard. But he'd been very frank about his struggles, especially in a recent memoir that he penned. He said that he had spent over the years over $7 million on rehab and recovery, that he'd gone to rehab 15 times, and he'd been doing better in recent years and had become a passion for him to try to help others who were addicted get into recovery as well. He said that when he was, even during the time he was filming Friends, in various uh, seasons of his life then, he was addicted to alcohol, to opioids, and to cocaine. And when we see someone like Matthew Perry struggling with addiction, the thought may enter our minds, why would someone who seems to have it all struggle in that way? What is he looking for that he doesn't already have? I mean, he's on one of the most popular television shows of all time. He's wealthy, getting paid well for being on that show. He's dating famous actresses, has a thriving romantic life, and by all indications had really close friendships with his co-stars. Why would he feel a need to go there? Why would he feel a need to do that? There is a mystery to addiction. Because we ask that question not just of some famous person who struggles, but really anyone who struggles addiction, the thought can cross our mind, why would they, why would we do that when we know that it's unhealthy, when we know that it's going to be harmful to us? And even if you haven't struggled with addiction the way that Matthew Perry did, you probably could ask that question of yourself because I'm willing to bet that in some area of your life, some areas maybe of your life, you've done things or do things that you know aren't healthy, but you do them anyway. Even if it doesn't rise to the level of an addiction that you have to go to rehab for. You know, why do we eat foods that we know are unhealthy and not good for us? I go to the doctor and she says, your blood pressure is high. Here's the foods you need to avoid. And what do I have for dinner that night? Many of those same foods. You know, we, we know that a sedentary lifestyle isn't healthy for us, but it's hard to get up sometimes and actually exercise and do stuff. It, this can apply in all areas of our lives. Why do people return to unhealthy people and unhealthy relationships? Why do they keep engaging in toxic relationships in their life? Why do we engage with mind-numbing, time-wasting entertainment options all the time? Why do we spend so much time on our phones? The list could go on and on. In different areas of our lives, we tend to do things that we know aren't healthy, but we do them anyway. And you better believe that this applies in our spiritual lives as well. We know we need God. We know that we've experienced grace and forgiveness and salvation. It's really clear to us that our lives work best when we pay attention to God and do what he says. So why then do we find ourselves doing things and paying attention to things that are not healthy for us spiritually, that distract us from God, that take our eyes off of him? Following uh, language and examples we see in scripture, we call those things idols. An idol is anything that we give worship and devotion to that we should only be giving to God. Uh, an idol is anything that we look to to do something for us that only God can do, to provide for us, to protect us, to give our lives meaning and significance. Idols are substitute gods 
They can also be additional gods. Something we worship instead of or in addition to the Lord. Idols can take all different forms in our lives. We are really good at making idols. Uh, I forget who it was said, our hearts are idol-making factories. And that tends to be the case. We can make idols out of other people. People who are important to us. Our life comes to center around them. Uh, We can make idols out of leaders, political figures, looking to them to be our savior instead of the Lord. In our culture today, a lot of people make idols out of celebrities, wanting to be like them, focusing on them, giving so much attention to them. And there's variations of that in the Christian world. Sometimes uh, people can get fixated on a a well-known pastor or preacher or musician. And rather than that person becoming an arrow that points to the Lord... That person comes to take the place of God in their lives and who they're looking to instead of looking to God. And idols can, aren't just people. Jesus warned that the, about the main substitute God he was concerned with was money in people's lives. At least that's the one he highlighted in the Sermon on the Mount. He said you can't worship God and money. And so many people are trapped in a love of money. And that shows up in greed. It shows up in materialism. It shows up in a poverty mindset. It's just demonstrating that they think money is the answer to what they need in life. In our, in our society, we'd have to say pleasure is a substitute God for many people. Especially when you look at how our culture thinks about sex. Not healthy sex inside the context of marriage, but all the unhealthy versions of sexual pleasure that get, that get trumpeted and heralded as something good, whether that's pornography to fornication, to use a really old-fashioned biblical word. Our society is seeking pleasure. They want to feel good. Uh, people make idols out of relationships, uh, family relationships, friendships, romantic relationships. My life will be okay if that relationship is okay. And all those addictions I just mentioned can certainly be those idols. And that's not even an exhaustive list, even though I get exhausted listening to it. (laughs) When we're thinking clearly, we don't want to want to be attracted to those things. We don't want to be devoted to them. We want to be fully devoted to God. So how do we do that? How can we become idol-proof? How can we at least become idol-resistant in our lives? How can we resist the lure of those idols? We're going to get some help answering that as we look at uh, Exodus 32 today, continuing on our series called People of the Presence. Got a couple of weeks left before we wrap up Exodus. And what we've seen in the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the tabernacle, this place of worship that God gave Moses the plans for when Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. You remember at the end of Exodus 24, the people had ratified their covenant with God. And, and they said, yep, we're in. We're going to obey. And then Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai into God's presence to get further instructions. What we see in chapter 32 is sort of a cut away to what, the peop- what happened down back of the ranch during this time. Down at the, the foot of the mountain in the Israelite camp, what was happening as Moses' time on the mountain was drawing to an end. And uh, as, we, as we look at this passage, we're going to get some help to understand how we can resist the lure of idols. We're going to be looking at most of the chapter as we go, but to just sort of set the stage, we'll look at the first 14 verses. So would you stand with me and follow along as I read these verses for us? <clears throat> when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, "Uh, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have become quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Lord, uh, we are sobered as we read this passage. Uh, We want to learn all that you want us to learn today and see all that you want us to see. So Holy Spirit, do your work of revelation in this place as we look at your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see you more clearly today. We pray that you would open our ears and minds so we can hear and understand all that you want to say to us. We pray against any distraction or confusion or anything that would get in the way of that. And as you've already been moving in this service, Lord, continue to move, quicken our hearts so that we would make the responses to you that you want us to make today, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So this is a tragic story. The people have only just made their covenant with God when they break it. It's like the ink isn't even dry on the contract and they violated it. Uh, One commentator said, it's like the Israelites committed adultery on their wedding night. That's how, really how stark it is. I mean, Moses is still up in the presence of God. They could probably still see it from the camp. And yet they're breaking the covenant. You know, they, um, they were eager to give anyone but the Lord credit for getting them out of Israel. Moses brought us up out of Israel. These gods brought us up out of Israel. Instead of what God had said in Exodus 21, where he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And the people are violating commandments left and right. They violate the first of the Ten Commandments in that they they had another God. They violate the second. They made an image of a created thing and bowed down to it. They violated the third because they called what they were doing a feast to the Lord, which it clearly was not. They're, They're misusing his name. This is a tragic situation. And the Lord even is so angry. He says to Moses, your people who you brought up out of Egypt, you know, and, Moses, and, and the Lord threatens to destroy the Israelites and start over with Moses. And Moses is presented here as 
talking the Lord out of this and saying, no, remember your character. Think of your reputation. Remember your promises to the patriarchs. And the Lord relents. But this is serious business. And the presenting issue for the Israelites is this idol that they made in the form of a golden calf. That was the idol for them that they were giving worship and devotion to that was only due to the Lord. That became their substitute or technically their additional God. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that probably none of you need to be convinced not to feast and dance in front of a golden calf. Uh, It's probably not literally going to be the same sort of idol for you. But even though the forms of the idols in our lives are going to take different shapes, we can learn from the negative example of the Israelites so that we can resist the lure of those idols, whatever they would look like in our lives. As we look at Exodus 32, I want us to see four actions that we can take that will help us become idol-proof, or at least resist the lure of idols. How do we do this? First, we've got to resolve the underlying issues that make us susceptible to the lure of the idols. What's making us vulnerable so that the idol seems appealing to us? And we're given an indication of some of what the Israelites were struggling with here in the first verses of Exodus 32. It starts by saying, when they saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. The people here are impatient because God is not operating on the time frame that they want him to. They said Moses was on the mountain for so long It was not taking longer than God intended it for for it to take. I don't know that Moses thought it was taking longer than it should, but it's taking longer than the people wanted it to take. They had not been given a time frame in advance. Does God, God, have you noticed in your life, he seldom gives you a time frame in advance? Yeah, at least in my life, that's been the case. And so the people, it's been a long time. It's been over a month. What happened to Moses? And they're impatient. So they feel like we've got to make something happen. We've got to make it happen. And how many times in our lives does impatience set us up for an idol to somehow seem appealing to us? It's taking too long. God isn't working the way that I want him to work in the timing in which I want him to work. And so I've got to make something happen. This goes right with the second issue we see they exhibit, which is control. They say to Aaron, make us gods. It's an interesting perspective on gods that they are something that can be made by people. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what we see in Genesis, when the Lord is the one who is the maker, who makes the heavens and the earth, who creates man in his image? Someone once said, in the beginning God created man in his image, and ever since man has been returning the favor. We are prone to create God in our image, and that's what the people are telling Aaron to do. They're taking control of their spiritual lives. They're saying, we've got to make it happen. And I think what was underneath that was fear. The people's only connection to God was through Moses. They'd even said just a little earlier in Exodus, uh, was it 21, or end of chapter 20, they said, please don't let God speak directly to us. It's too scary. Moses, you go to God and get from him what we're supposed to hear, and you tell us you're going to be our go-between. So the people's only connection to God was through Moses. I think we're so used to having a direct connection to God through Jesus that we may not appreciate how scary that must have felt to see your only link with God disappear up a mountain and not come down. 
And so they were, they were afraid. They knew that they needed supernatural help to sustain them in the wilderness, to bring them into the promised land. They knew they needed supernatural help. And with Moses, their only link to God gone, they thought, we've got to do something to make this work. And how often in our lives do fear and control show up? How often is that part of why we're susceptible to the lure of idols? Because we, we feel like I've got to make something happen. God's not working the way I want. I've got to take control of this. And if he's not going to provide this for me, I've got to provide it for myself. If he's not going to protect me, I've got to find my protection over here. If he's not going to help me feel satisfied and fulfilled in the way and the timing I want, I've got to find that somewhere else. And what's underneath that control and that grasping is a fear. In my experience and observation, the root of control is always fear. When you meet a controlling person, ask yourself what they're afraid of. When you notice control in your life, ask, ask what am I afraid of? These are underlying issues for the Israelites. And, and these were issues that if they would have dealt with these, they would have been able to resist this temptation to idolatry. I, I wish that the people would have remembered what the Lord had said about them and remembered what he had done on their behalf. How would this story have been different if when the people came to Aaron, Aaron would have said, guys, hang on, remember, the Lord said that we are his firstborn son. He said that we are his chosen people. He said that we are his treasured possession. Give him a little more time. And remember all that he's done for us. He sent the plagues against the Egyptians and he destroyed Pharaoh's army. He parted the Red Sea. He's provided manna and water in the wilderness. Didn't you just pick up manna again this morning? Don't you see his presence on the mountain up there still? Hang on, give him some time. He's going to be faithful because he has been faithful. Oh, that Aaron would have said that. And oh, that I would have said that. All the times that I've given into a temptation to focus on something other than the Lord. What will help us resolve our underlying issues is not simply to identify them, although that really matters. It's to internalize what the Lord has said to us and what he's done in our lives. To remember, wait a minute, I am God's beloved child. Nothing can take me from his hand. No power of hell, no scheme of man, right? Can ever pluck me from his hand. He will never leave me or forsake me. I am, I am a new creation in him. To remind ourselves of what he said is true about us till that gets internalized in our hearts and to re rehearse what he's done for us. All the ways that he's been faithful. And we can do that for ourselves through journaling and writing it out. We can do that in prayer to God, just saying, Lord, I just want to acknowledge all the ways you've been faithful to me. We even do that when we give testimony to others. Uh, you might have noticed in the bulletin that we've got our Thanksgiving testimony service coming up in a few weeks. That's a time for you to say, here's what I'm thankful to God for, what he's done for me as I, I reflect on this last year. It's healthy for us to give those testimonies, and it's healthy for us to hear those testimonies because it rehearses for us what God has done, how he's been active, how he showed his faithfulness. There may be more to resolving our issues than just that. We may need to talk to Christian friends. We may need therapy or counseling. We may need targeted inner healing ministry. But we absolutely must remember what the Lord has said about us, rehearse what he's done for us, 
until those truths become internalized in us, and that helps us resist the lure of idols when we deal with the fear, the control, the impatience, and whatever other issues might be there. So to resist the lure of idols, we've got to resolve those underlying issues. We also have to recognize uh, the insufficiency of those idols, all that they cannot do. You know, there is a tragic irony when you read Exodus 25 through 30 and all that the Lord is instructing Moses and the people to do in building the tabernacle. And then you get to Exodus 32 because so much of what the people are doing in Exodus 32 is like an inferior imitation of things God's telling them to do in the previous chapters. Like the people want a tangible focus for their worship so they build a golden calf. God's giving them a tangible focus for their worship in the tabernacle at the same time they're doing that. The people, uh, the, the people give their gold earrings to make this golden calf while God is telling Moses, ask the people for contributions including gold to build the tabernacle. The people come to Aaron and say, would you lead us in this religious exercise? At the same time, God isn't telling Moses Aaron's going to be the high priest. The people make this golden calf, which in uh, other uh, religions at that time and place, including in, in Egypt, calves or bulls were seen as the pedestal or the seat of the God. So they're making a seat for God. At the same time, Moses is giving, getting instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant, which we saw last week was to be a throne for God. So the people are, they've got like this counterfeit, fake, inferior version of so much that God is telling them to do. And the, the tragedy is that what these people were coming up with was never going to satisfy. It was never going to work for a couple reasons. First of all, because what they were doing was only based on their own ideas. It wasn't built on the foundation of God's revelation. Uh, Moses illustrates this rather graphically. Look at uh, what he does. Says he, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, uh, the people shouting, he had said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Very graphically illustrating, you have broken the covenant that God made, the covenant that is of God, that is from God, that he was the source of. Folks, there are all sorts of other idols that we can give attention to. There are even whole alternate systems of worship and philosophies of life and, and determinations of what's right and wrong that are available to us in the world. But none of those substitutes, imitations, are ever going to satisfy because none of those are built on the foundation of what God has revealed to us. On, for none of those can we say, this is of God, this is from God. You know... It's just not a firm foundation if what we're building something on is just what I think is right or wrong versus what you think is right and wrong. If it's just the cultural values I was raised with versus the cultural values you were raised with. If it's just what makes sense to me versus what makes sense to you. If that's all we're dealing with, then we're not building on any kind of a solid foundation that's relativistic and subjective. And what's the point of that? 
How solid is that? So the people, what they were doing was never going to work because it wasn't built on God's revelation. Anything other than the true worship of God is not going to work. It's not going to satisfy because it's not based on his revelation. And second problem, it's never going to lead to his presence. God wanted to dwell with his people. That's why he was giving them the tabernacle so that he could be present there in the most holy place. The people were trying to, they were, they were trying to control God being with them by making this golden calf. It was never going to work. God was going to be present on his terms. He was not going to be present on their terms. And anything we go after that's a substitute, an alternative, even in an addition to God, is never going to satisfy because it's not going to lead us to God's presence. Folks, we were created. We were created to experience transcendence. Aren't we made with a sense that there must be more than this? When we look at the world around us. We don't, you know, Ecclesiastes says it this way. It says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We have this sense that there should be more for us to experience than just the humdrum, normal, mortal, natural world around us. That desire is put in us by the Lord. It's a desire, though, that can only be satisfied in Him. So much of what people are searching for when they're going to idols, when they're going to substances of all kinds, when they're going to sexual pleasure, when they're going to uh, some relationship, they're looking for some transcendence. They're looking for something more than just what's normal life. They're looking for a higher experience. They're looking for something more. That something more they're looking for is God. And they may experience something for a second, but it's never going to satisfy the way the presence of God satisfies because that is what we were made for. You were made to know God, to have a relationship with the creator of the universe, to know his presence in your life. You are going to be woefully disappointed looking anywhere else. Whatever else you might try for a season, for a moment, is not going to satisfy. And, and it helps us resist the lure of idols to know that's the case. You know, um, it takes more than just knowing mentally. Uh, but this, is, this helps. It's a, it's a part of how we resist the lure of idols is to be reminded, to recognize uh, they don't work. The imitation worship, the substitutes, the alternatives, they, they're never going to satisfy. They're not built on God's revelation. They don't lead to his presence. And so resisting the lure of idols means that we are going to uh, resolve our underlying issues. We're going to recognize the insufficiencies of those idols. Uh, third, means that we're going to repent of our devotion to them. If and when we've given in to the lure of idols, then we've got to repent. This is often going to be a starting point for us. We're going to repent, and then we're going to put some of these other things in place. And the model of repentance that we have in Exodus 32 is actually not um, from the people, but it's from Moses and the way he deals with the situation. The first thing Moses does when he comes down the mountain is to deal with the idol itself. Uh, Exodus 32, 20 says, He took the calf the people had made and burdened in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Now, the fact that he burned it may mean that it was wood overlaid with gold, like a lot of what they would eventually build for the tabernacle. But the point is, Moses is utterly destroying the idol. This idol is not coming back. It's not going to be reconstituted. It is utterly, thoroughly destroyed. 
And the, the idea for us as we think about repenting from idols in our lives is it matters that we reject and destroy whatever it is that we've been looking to instead of or in addition to the Lord. That, um, that, that we destroy it. Now, this is sometimes harder for us to do when it's not something physical. You, you know, it, there's not a thing for us to destroy. Uh, you know, I think people would wish that they could burn away their desire for alcohol. I think people wish that they could grind into powder their lust for pornography. People wish that they could just like blow up and destroy this, this attraction they have to this idol that's not, that's not the Lord. We can't do it in the same way. We've got to deal with that idol as severely as we need to, so it's not an option for us to go back to. If you think of your life like a house... We don't want to just move the idol from the living room to the attic where we could then bring it out again like Christmas decorations. We want to get rid of it. And, and you know, this takes work. Uh, it, I can tell you in my experience, a lot of what it takes is confessing it to another person, which is the last thing you want to do. But that exposure robs that idol of its power. And it can be a big part of grinding it into powder is to even just acknowledge to someone else, this has been an attraction in my life it shouldn't have been. I've given attention to this I shouldn't have. I've been devoted to this. Ad- admitting it to another person, someone who trusts, someone who can stand with you, is in a, a big part of destroying it. We've got to deal with the idol itself. Not just put it away, destroy it, reject it. Then uh, Moses deals with Aaron. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Uh, do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. <clears throat> As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <clears throat> that would be uh, funny if it weren't so tragic, right? It, it reminds me of the uh, Seinfeld episode where they talk about how you don't yada, yada, yada over the important stuff. You know, that's really what, what Aaron is saying here. They gave me gold jewelry and I threw it into the fire, yada, 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 out came a golden calf. Aaron is conveniently skipping over the fact that he's the one who made the calf. <clears throat> I think the Lord here is giving Aaron, or uh, Moses is giving Aaron a chance to accept some responsibility for what happened, and Aaron won't do that. He's blaming the people. They're so prone to evil. He's glossing over what happened. He's not taking responsibility. And this is very different than what Moses does when he confronts the people in verse 30 and when he talks to the Lord in verse 31 and 32, where Moses says to the people, you've committed a great sin. He uses that same language with the Lord. These people have committed a great sin. Moses called it what it was. Here's a lesson for us, folks. When we're repenting of idolatry, we've got to call it what it is and take responsibility. And we don't, we don't want to. We want to be like Aaron. We want to uh, blame, shift the blame. We want to minimize. We want to rationalize. We want to skip over. We want to use euphemisms for what we did. I struggled with this. No, you worshiped an idol. Admit it, at least to the Lord. Take responsibility, God, this is what I did. Say it plainly, say it fully. Make a full, frank confession to him. This gives me comfort. He already knows. So it's not like I'm bumming him out, like, 
Lord, I know you don't think I'm this type of person, but I've got to tell you that I gave my attention to this other thing. The Lord knows. And when we admit it to him, it gives him something to work with. So take responsibility, call it what it is, admit it to the Lord. Well, after this, Moses deals with the people. Uh, Let's see what happens here. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a, become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the, Israel, all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth, uh, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you've been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. So clearly, buy swords and kill everyone who worships idols. Oh, you should be laughing harder, because that is not the point. Uh, (laughs) No, this is a shocking passage, right? This is something that when we read it, we go, wait a minute, what, what is happening here? You know, there's a few things we could say about this. One is that this was a unique time in Israel's history. It was a, a critical moment, and so really dramatic action was, was needed here to show how serious the sin and the consequence of it was. We could point out that all the Israelites had sinned. They had all given their earrings. They had all worshipped the calf. And Moses said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. The Levites were just quick to repent and come to the Lord. Anyone could have come to Moses' side and been spared that judgment. We'd also point out that 3,000 is a relatively small percentage. If we take the numbers at face value, there were 600,000 men who came out of Egypt, plus women and children, at a community of maybe 2 million people. 3,000 is a very small percentage. These were probably the ringleaders, the instigators who were killed. We could um, point out how this wasn't Moses' idea, but it's something the Lord specifically said. We could also point out that Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We often think of that as meaning spiritual death of separation from God or our own eventual mortality. But isn't God within his rights to give the wages for sin in the short term rather than just the long term? We could say all of that, but still, I don't like it. I don't, I don't, I don't like what it says here. And it's good that we don't because this is not an example they were meant to follow. But still, there's a lesson for us to learn. One commentator said uh, this. says, no, the Levites do not set us an example of an action to follow, but they do challenge our complacency and our lack of pure indignation and moral outrage. We might be shocked they took such a drastic step. Might they be shocked at how indifferent we can become to idols in our lives? Might they wonder, how on earth can you not uh, see that and be upset by it? Where's the outrage? Where's the moral outrage? Now, when we talk about moral outrage, though, here, we're not talking about something in this context that is meant to be directed towards the world around us. What's under consideration here is not the way all the nations around Israel worshipped idols. It's the way that Israel was worshipping an idol. And so it's so easy for us to get morally outraged at them doing those things out there as a convenient way of ignoring the outrage we should feel at the idols in our own lives. The application is not, let's get outraged at the wickedness in the world, although there's wickedness in the world, and we certainly shouldn't be happy about it, and we can call it for what it is. But the lesson from this passage is, what about the idols in our own hearts and lives? 
in the places where we have authority and could make a difference. Where's the outrage at that? Where's the indignation? May God quicken our hearts to be, to feel the agony we need to feel at our own spiritual betrayal when that's the case for us. May we be open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that can lead to some indignation and outrage that says, I'm not okay with this in my life. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get rid of it. The outrage, doing what it goes kind of back with grinding the idol into power. Do whatever it takes to deal with the idol. Moses also uh, demonstrates repentance in that he wants to make atonement for the sin of the people. Uh, Exodus 32, 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. I am so glad that what Moses presented as a possibility is a certainty for us. We don't have to wonder, is it possible that perhaps our sin can be atoned for? Jesus atoned for our sin on the cross. We have the promise that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our sin has been atoned for. This is part of our repentance. Admit to God what we've done. Confess it before him. Ask him to forgive us and know that we have been forgiven. Resisting the lure of idols means that we're going to resolve those underlying issues. It means that we're going to recognize the insufficiencies of those idols. We're going to repent of our devotion to those idols when that's necessary. And finally, we're going to remain or recenter in God's presence. I'm just going to mention this briefly. This gets us into chapter 33, which we'll probably look at in a couple weeks. But what happens in, as a result of all this is that the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to go ahead of the people, but I'm no longer going to be with the people. I'll take them into the promised land, but I'm not going to be in their midst. And Moses again intercedes and says, God, that's not good enough. We've got to have your presence. Moses knew that the presence of God was essential for the people. And it's essential for us as well. God does not take his presence away from us. But as I said a few weeks ago, we can be more or less sensitive to his presence. We can be more or less aware of his presence in our lives. We need that awareness of God's presence in us. Because the more that we know the true presence of God in our lives, the less appealing fake gods are going to be. The more we know the genuine presence of God, the less appealing the the substitutes or alternatives are going to be. So one of the ways that we become idol-proof, or at least idol-resistant, is to stay in God's presence. And when we realize that we've gone away from him, to recenter in his presence our awareness of him. And, and the more we do that, the more that we stay focused on him, the, more, uh, the less likely it is that those idols will have that appeal because we're holding on to the true, the right, the good, the authentic, the genuine. There will be temptations to idols in our lives, probably not a golden calf, but things that for us might be just as tempting as that idol was for the Israelites. How do we resist the lure of those idols? Well, we've got to resolve those underlying issues. Do you notice impatience? Do you notice a desire to control? Do you notice fear? We can resolve those as we internalize what God has said about us and what he's done for us. As we remember and rehearse that until it becomes a part of who we are. Perhaps doing other work as well, but certainly doing that. So that we are grounded and secure in that 
So the insecurity and fear doesn't have a chance to come in. And we recognize the insufficiencies of those idols. There's systems around us. There's other ways of thought. There's idols that are preventing some sort of alternate plan, some sort of substitute form of worship, maybe very developed or maybe very informal. But none of that is ever going to satisfy because it's not based on God's revelation. It doesn't lead to his presence. You were created for transcendence. You were created to know the presence of God. Nothing else is going to satisfy like his presence will. We repent of our devotion, acknowledge what we did when that's necessary, uh, bring it before the Lord, um, be thorough and, and frank in our confession, ask for forgiveness, know that we've got it, and then deal with that idol as thoroughly as we need to so that we don't go back to it. And then we're going to hold on to God's presence. We're going to remain in him. We're going to recenter in him. You know, we're, we're looking at a passage this morning that is a warning passage, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of sadness and tragedy here. And even when we think about the idols that may be in our lives or that are, are tempting for us, there can be a heaviness that comes. But I hope that what we go away with this morning is the good news that you can be free. You can be free. Even the Israelites did not stay stuck worshiping an idol. It took a drastic work by God on, on his part, but his presence does uh, remain with them. They do build the tabernacle. He, the Lord does go with them and take them into the promised land. There, there is freedom. It, it, we, we, might, we should be sober. There should be an outrage and a sorrow when we see what this might look like in our lives. But then we lift our eyes and say, but I can return. I can repent. I can recenter in God's presence. And that would be my hope for you today. Some of us here today, God may bring to mind something that is a, an idol in your life or something that you're tempted to give attention to other than the Lord or in addition to him. You know, for the people here, it says, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. They were looking at the calf, thinking that was an inferior God that was the seat of the invisible Lord. It wasn't that they were saying the Lord isn't our God. They just said, but this golden calf, I mean, we've got to have something else we can look at. That's the way of idols. They take the place of God or they get added to our worship of the Lord. And today's a day to say, Lord, I don't want anything substituting or in addition to you. That may be a prompting that God gives, gives in your heart. Or maybe today he's just saying, hey, stay in me. Stay in me. You're doing, you're doing good. You're not worshiping other idols. Just stay in my presence. Hear me say again how much I love you. Remember again the ways that I've shown my faithfulness. Stay centered in me. But whatever that response is, let's make that to the Lord today. I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads to create a moment between you and God. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come so they can lead us again in worship. But just listen to the Lord in this moment, what he would be speaking to you, and begin to make the response to him that he'd be prompting you uh, to do this morning. Lord, in this moment, I just declare your grace and your hope in this place and your freedom. Thank you, Lord, that you are God who sets us free. Thank you, Lord, that there are so many testimonies in this room of people who used to have an addiction, who used to have an idol in their lives, who used to give devotion to something other than you, but that's no longer the case. Thank you, Lord. And thank you for the testimonies that are waiting to be gained as we respond to you today. Lord, I pray for each person here myself included, that you would speak to us, Lord. Quickly draw our attention to anything that we're giving 
attention and devotion to other than you in addition to you, anything that's taking the type of worship that only you deserve from us. Lord, may, you, may we experience your conviction and then, Lord, may we also experience your freedom as we repent, as we confess, as we receive your forgiveness. Show us what it looks like to deal thoroughly with whatever those idols might be. And Lord, we want to be a people who live in your presence, who don't just visit your presence, not on Sundays or just when we have devotions in the morning. We want to be a people that remain in your presence and are so satisfied with you that nothing else holds any appeal. Lord, may that, may that increasingly be our experience. And may that be true of us as a church, Lord, that we are a people who remain in your presence, who dwell with you, you dwell with us. We're satisfied with you and not tempted at all toward anything other than you. May it be, Lord, we pray in your name. We bow before you, Lord, and as we go from this place, we take that awareness of you with us. Thank you that you go with us, but we want to stay in a state of awareness of you. So may that be the case, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, I want to bless you as we go today. So Chapel family, I bless you in the name of the Lord with the presence of God in your life burning brightly in fresh ways. I bless you with the glorious light of God's presence shining in your life, illuminating anything that would try to remain in darkness, and that his light would be a cleansing presence in your life as the Holy Spirit is in you making himself known. I bless you with the grace of God. I bless you with the power of God. I bless you with the love of God in your life this week. I bless you with freedom in the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are blessed as we go from this place, Chapel family. Amen. 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 Bless you.